This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by five amazing individuals. Greg Ross, Illuminati, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, and Michael Fritchie. If you want to support the show, you can become a patron at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Well, welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I have with me Natalie. Hi. And uh, Natalie's friend, who is the... Ungoogleable Michelangelo. Is that because it's hard to Google you? It's it's complicated. It's the paradox of ungoogleability. So by mm. being ungoogleable, the ungoogleable Michelangelo becomes googleable. Because if you just look up Michelangelo, it's going to be Ninja Turtles and Renaissance artists all the way down. <laughs> but that's Michelangelo, which is a common misconception. And I'm Michelangelo, like the Ninja Turtle, Cowabunga. Oh, okay. All right. That works. Yeah. Uh, I, I know you have a podcast. <clears throat> I do. Which yeah. is called? Self-Portraits as Other People. Okay. And what's what's the theme there? Well, the tagline that I use is uh, where the limits of language meet the fringes of reality, which is similar to the idea of ungoogleability. Like, of course, there's the element of you can't Google it, but it's also something to be ungoogleable. It's unquantifiable. It's unspeakable. It's kind of off the charts. It's kind of like, where did the road go, you know? Right. Kind of leads you into that that um, that that unspeakable territory. But I like what happens when you push language to its limits mm-hmm. and you kind of push it against these translinguistic realms and see how it behaves, how wildly it starts to flail and, and adapt itself. Can it, can it fly? Is it going to falter and fail? Like it usually falters and fails, I think. It can, but I think there's ways to... I mean, you might not be able to wrap your mind around it, but you can warp your mind around it. Mm. Like you have to somehow allow the language to uh, to rewild itself in order to get to these like through the trickster territory. So that's where like tongue twisters and riddles and rhymes and wordplay and things like that come in, which is are things that I like to use for these investigations a lot of times. Okay, so t- t- tell us a little about your history. Where do you come from? Where do I hail from? I originally, I'm from the Netherlands, which is a little country in Europe, from the west coast of Europe, where they don't talk like this, uh, necessarily. <laughs> they probably talk a little bit more like this, but I grew up in front of the television with lots of um, American programming, and okay. I had a talent for mimicry, so I picked it up, and now I just, I'm kind of a stand-up chameleon. I go around with a... Um, neutral American accent uh, but I moved to the States around the year 2000 originally because I was uh, aspiring to be a filmmaker oh okay and uh, then around like 2001 I was going to move to New York of all places to study film I was spending time there uh, a friend of mine was living there and he was studying film so I'd help him produce projects uh, but then that thing happened with the towers and the planes and yeah, that thing. Re- history kind of got rerouted, yeah. more so than I knew at the time. It seemed like I remember a girlfriend 
at the time called me up and said turn on the news and I turned on the TV and there was the Pentagon on fire and I was like it was just something on TV for me it was right, something happening right. somewhere else to other people but looking back at it that was a pivotal moment where history and my personal history got rerouted yeah I fell in love for the first time I was starting to work with psychedelics or had an interest in psychedelics and that kind of married itself to my art I started like drawing and painting a lot more I was always a writer, but I went on this psychedelic detour where like these, I moved away from film for the longest time and my focus was more on painting and writing and then music started coming into it. There was like this, this exploration of all the different um, sensual modalities, expressive modalities. And then eventually like film kind of brought it together again because it's where you can combine right. all these different things. What, what have you done film-wise? I've made some short films, I've made some um, kind of narrative music videos, hmm. um, I've acted in things. I was living in Los Angeles for about five years, like finally after ten years of living in the Bay Area and doing all kinds of like having like bands and storytelling performances and all these different things, I realized I was living very close to LA, which was, you know, the reason I had come to this country was to do film, so I'd always had this idea that if I would live there, it would be a terrible experience. I, I feared L.A., and I thought, like, especially being an actor, like, you're going there, you're basically, you're a nobody aspiring to be somebody and, like, begging for a break or something. Yeah. So I, that's what kept me away from it for all that time, but everything else I was doing like reached a certain point where I couldn't push it further and everything was kind of screaming from beyond that threshold like do it give it a try try it out you know so I moved there and then I lived in fear <laughs> I went to the place I, I feared and um, I ended up you know I was a, a dead soldier for a living at one point in Westworld oh but the cool thing about that like the TV series the TV series nice but here's the cool thing about it, like it seems like like that's not like a career point I'm not proud of, like I was a dead soldier in Westworld. Yeah, you were you know? in Westworld, that's enough. But it's <laughs> No, but it gets better, because the episode I was in was the first season's finale, and the title of the episode was The Bicameral Mind. Hmm. And I am right. Julian Jaynes, who wrote, I don't know if you're familiar with I him have at all. I have it in the back. The, he wrote... The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which I read for the first time when I was 19, and it has been like a very pivotal part of my thinking, my worldview, my mm. creative work. And so it like, through this like very menial job, it's somehow like synchronized with this larger interest and, and in a way like cemented that link even further. And that's been something that's come back in the last few years. Like I had Marcel Kausten, who is the uh, the founder of the Julian Jaynes Foundation, on my show recently, and we got to like really delve into these, the theory that Julian Jaynes had, the like fourfold thesis, the misconceptions around it, and things like that. So it's really like reintegrated itself and shown me what a foundation of my of thinking in my work that has been. We, we, we've touched on the, the, on this show. I read it about the same age, and it had the opposite effect on me. I really? did not like his work at all. At all? I thought he was kind of, uh, uh, how can I put it, like, like he was looking at primitive people as lesser. 
you know, like they couldn't mm. tell the difference between their, their, their inner voice and, and their gods. And I felt like that's, that's not how that works. I, don't, I would suggest to, to revisit it, because maybe like you've, you've absorbed a lot more experience, right, I'm sure. Because right. it, I don't think it was that simple. Like to give it in a nutshell for people that are listening that aren't familiar yeah. with his theory. Um, well, first he takes like 60 pages to define consciousness as he, he views it, which to boil it down to a very simplified term would be like um, subjective interiority or introspect, something you can introspect upon. And he paints this picture of uh, basically as language evolved and especially metaphors for the physical behavioral world. So to this inner space, which is a metaphorical mind space evolved through which we're able to look at ideas and look at thoughts as if they were objects. <clears throat> so that comes also with a, an analog of yourself, almost like the body's hallucination of itself, you know, that, that lives in right, there, right. your analog I or metaphor me as he calls it. But he proposes that there was a time before we had the subjective consciousness, which he calls um, the bicameral era, when we had a bicameral or two-chambered mind where one side of the brain would basically cast a voice, a hallucinated voice, in a sort of hierarchy of like the gods or your parents or your overseers or the king or whatever it was. So like there was a critical moment where men and women were persons of action. That's who you were. There was not like a conceptual a thinking element to yourself that could, in the same same sense that animals aren't like they're, they might be thinking on some level, but they don't have like a symbolical sense of self where they're casting themselves into the future or into the past or mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. solve these problems. And so um, when there be like this critical junction where a decision needed to be made, the God part of the brain, the one side of the brain would spring up and would give the solution. And then as civilization complexified, these control systems were no longer able to keep all the pieces moving and then with the advent of writing the voice was able to be transposed onto like tablets legislature where the voice doesn't have control over you the same way because when you read something the voice comes from the tablet or comes from the right the surface of the paper and there's like a you can you don't have to obey it but that also left us at this place where how are we going to make decisions? So then like divination comes into play, for instance, as a way to kind of divine the nature of the gods, the, the will of the gods, you know? Okay, all right. So I, I don't think he thought of them as lesser, but I think there is an issue in... Well, less involved. Well, I mean, but that's the nature of evolution, isn't it? Mm, but to I some degree. I think when you're looking at that time period, you're, you're, you're looking at the recovery of civilization from something more evolved. But the opposite of that would be to look back and you get kind of a Flintstones model where you, you look back at like the caveman as the modern Stone Age family where they have the same faculties sure, that but, we did. Well, but we are finding more and more that they did have concepts of like life after death and things like that. At a, at a certain point, I think that because there was a time when there were no marked tombstones and that's like one of the examples that James gives too that at some point we started marking graves and that's where like a shift happens in in the personification and i mean i think there were probably super superstitious elements and like dream elements maybe and, and mythological elements even before 
that time, but I'm not schooled enough to really be able to uh, to comment on that. Natalie, did you did you find what you were looking for? Well, I was just looking for you know how we met, and yeah. I did find some things. So that was because <clears throat> you said it was very synchronistic. I felt that it was. It was just. It was. Well, it was a chance meeting. <laughs> Literally, right? Yeah, because. Um, this was back in 2018, and I got a, a an email out of the blue. I'm not sure where, where this person found me. Social media, I assume. Uh, I don't know what precipitated it, but it was this mysterious. Uh, I don't. I don't know. The the content was odd. It was just sort of like this person who was into chaos magic, I think, and they were just kind of cryptic messages with little pieces of art. And the name that showed up on the on the you know, the display name was Chance Fate, and there were things in the email that there were like three different things that I that I uh, googled I think or at least two, and um, one of them led me directly to you. And I remember seeing your art, and uh, it was the what, what was the piece that I don't remember the so title. It was it was a piece <coughs> called Elfin Titus, yeah, which is like. Uh, kind of a fictitious uh, psychically transmitted disease, a PSTD, if you will. Okay. Um, the, the image is of this almost like monkey-like, elf-like portrait with these like fluttering trinity of stacked eyes, which was a vision that had come to me in the Amazon when I sat with the Yagua tribe and drank something that was said to be Yahe, but not ayahuasca, which is a strange thing because it's supposed to be the same thing. It was a singular plant. In hindsight, it was probably towe or datura. Okay. And so this was like the one thing, I, one vision, quote unquote, that I was able to take out of that and turn into an art piece. And then uh, Natalie commented on that piece specifically because it looked like the characters dream that entities. you had, yeah, the yeah. dream entities that you had been chronicling for like. Yeah. It was then. it was very remarkably similar, and then I think he started talking about like the the Gelfling sort of link and yeah and the lemur and then the lemurs were what came up next, and I was like that that's absolutely wild because I went through a period of like I want to say like four years where I was getting like these this really powerful lemur symbolism in my dreams. These strange little lemurs would would show up and lead me to uh, you know unfortunately I don't have the notes in front of me, but it was like. Uh, sort of back and forth, both in future and past kind of uh, reflections, hmm. for want of a better word. I'm very tired, so forget my tired brain. But that's what I remember. It was like these little lemurs would show up in the dream. Well, not even little. They were like sort of like man lemurs and stuff that would show up and lead me to different like visions and things like that. I think, well, I think that started in like 2009 to they started kind of ending in 2012. Hmm. It might have been a little bit before that as well. Yeah, because I recall you yeah. you had written to me and then I would find different resonances in your art and yeah. what you had said and I would like tell you and show you illustrations of, of visions that I had had because I had this ayahuasca encounter with these like upright lemurs. Um, yeah, it was which had these Lemurians. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like Lemurians I called them jokingly because they seemed you know, like, like this humanoid figures and it was like there was this one kind of ambassador type with this like long, slender, like Jack Skellington-like limbs who like walked up and the other ones were kind of like hanging in the background like NPCs just kind of like 
slightly moving their heads around but like waiting for further instructions or something and they had this kind of like cyberpunk element where they had these fiber optic hairs with like these little like glowing neon tips at the end and that was something that you yeah, also had. I also had had that in the same. Yeah. And you showed me illustrations. So this is the beautiful thing. It wasn't just like, <laughs> like here's a psychonaut and an oneronaut who have very meticulously tried to map their encounters. <laughs> so it wasn't just like, no. oh yeah yeah, I saw that too. Yeah 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 yeah, with the with the little glowing tips. Yeah yeah. But it was like. What, like Terence McKenna used to say, like, what can you show me? And it's like, here, look at it, look at it. Like, yeah. Let's compare it. I found the email, and it was like the, the piece. I, I wrote it all over the piece around yeah. the, the yeah. to show the illustration of of the similarity. <laughs> it's pretty, it seemed undeniable, at least. And there was just, I, it looks like there's a lot more in the email, too, that was, was linking other synchronicities that I didn't remember with cicadas. And you mentioned that when he got here. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, it was just, and and I think it just kind of unraveled from there, but so much has happened between, that was 2018. Yeah. And so much has happened between then and now that my memory of it and is for, mud. For, for anybody that's interested in, like, the details of all this stuff, um, <clears throat> Natalie, a.k.a. Loga, was also my first guest when I started yeah. my podcast, and we did, like, a two-and-a-half-hour exploration of her dream... Um, chronicles and multiple personalities sort of the um, the, order, the multiplicity of my my masking right throughout life that has turned into these uh, yeah these there's depth of character to each one and I, I go into detail it's like two and a half hours or something yeah. it's called the order of multiple personalities because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the beauty of it was that it was so organized and cohesive and that it didn't seem disorderly or or possessive in the sense that that, that these things often will be presented. Right. Um, so t- tell me more about your time in the jungle. Y- the recent time. Sure. That, yeah. So I spent the last, uh, yeah, <laughs> I spent the last two years, um, almost two years living in Mexico in the jungle. Mm, okay. And so this wasn't just a visit. N- well, it started out as a visit. Like this is, so let's, let's go back a few years to like pandemic because that's something that I think that's kind of like the what I call the tuning fork in the road for humanity you know like everybody kind of like like that din just like 9-11 did like that din resounded throughout the world and so it was really like a time of adjustment like I was living in LA I wasn't happy I felt isolated and then COVID came and turned isolation to 11, you know? <laughs> it's like, now we're all isolated. And I was like, I've been preparing for this. <laughs> I'm, I'm already here. <laughs> um, my father, who lives in Florida, has Alzheimer's. And we have somebody, every three months, somebody comes from the Netherlands, a different person, to like, take care of him, to like oh. keep him company, <clears throat> uh, make sure he takes his medicine. And, uh, and that sort of thing. But because of COVID, now the borders were closing down. The person that was there needed to go back. Right. The future was uncertain. So I put all my belongings in storage. And I went to take care of him for eight months. And then after eight months, I, after six months or something, it was kind of like, okay, this is <laughs> starting to wear on me too. Oh, you know, Because yeah. it's like, it's, it, it's heart opening and it was very rewarding and a beautiful experience but also it's you know sometimes you know it's family like triggers will come up memories and i and now there's no way to like resolve things because it's yeah you know you're in this whole nother 
cognitive realm. I like to describe it as like living in his neurodegenerative memory palace. Right. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Which is, you know, there's beauty to it because the more of the personality that fades, really just the core remains. And at core, he's just like a really sweet and and well-intentioned man, you know, a really right. gentle man. And so that was a really beautiful experience, but it was also like wearing on me and it was time for me to like get back to like figuring out my life. Yeah. So I went back to California. I picked up my car and I basically went on the great American location scout, as I called it. I went looking for home. I went to places I used to live and they didn't feel like home. Like driving through San Francisco where I lived for 10 years, it felt like driving through the smoldering ruins of some like old battleground or something. And I was like, yep, home is not here anymore. <laughs> and I would just visit visit homies, you know, trying to find home. Yeah. Seeing like, who, who, do, who do I want to be close to? Maybe where they live is home, but spent some time in Arizona which was really good like connecting with the landscape there because I have like a very strong gravity towards kind of the idea of the genius loci like the resident spirit of a place like right. I like to create <clears throat> with an environment I actually did a short film slash music video in that desert where the desert kind of co-created it hmm. at one point on a walk through the desert there was a face looking up from me at me from the ground that wasn't a face it was a piece of a saguaro that had petrified or atrophied but it looked like a Rorschach face and that was, it was a perfect mask and it like gave this to me which became uh, a mask in this video where it's like it looks like it's grinning it's like this strange diabolical Rorschach scarecrow kind of face nice uh, and there were moments like that where like for instance like a particular part of the landscape while we were shooting would like light up like in this perfect fairy sun ray you know like where the landscape just lights up and it's like, ah, it's like, okay, quick, get over there, let's shoot this. Yeah, yeah. So that, that felt really good and it started, on this journey, I started kind of like conceptualizing what home would look or feel like. So I wanted community, I wanted to be closer to nature, I wanted to be able to make a bonfire. But I still hadn't found home, I was still just kind of like restless. And then there was a call from a friend who I had met, who had heard me on a podcast. It seems to be like the thread. They heard me on a podcast. <laughs> they kind of struck through the screen. They were like, hey, you seem cool. Uh, I'll be in LA soon. Maybe we can meet up. And we like met up. We got along. We kept in touch. And now she was saying, hey, does anybody want to come create in a um, snail-shaped house in the jungle in Mexico? And I was working on these snail snail shaped house snail shaped house a spiral like surreal architecture this spiral house ah. known as casa caracol the the snail house or the shell house or the spiral house interesting um and i have this thing with snails like during the lemur episode my ayahuasca story um i had basically <coughs> put a coin into the consciousness deposit box and inquired into some, show me some spirit guides or something. And the first things that showed up were the snails. Because in 2004, I wrote this story called The Eternal Snail Convention. Wow. The universe put a coin deposit in there. Oh, no, it was just my phone going off. Let me say that. <laughs> we, uh, I wrote this story in 2004, and I just, I never published it. I never printed it. I never fully illustrated it. Over time, here and there, 
uh, one snail illustration at a time, you know, because it works at a snail's pace. But mostly I just kept it memorized and I would intone it in kind of the bardic oratory storytelling tradition, like at times when it was prompted. And every time I told this story, something would happen. The first time I told it was in a hotel room to a bunch of hippies who stared at me wide-eyed and I recited it in rhyme. It's a very kind of like susical tale. Okay. And then they re one of them reached into their pocket afterwards and pulled out a little snail-shaped finger puppet. <laughs> and like every time I told the story, something like this would happen. Like it would resonate with people in a certain way. So I knew like this is like a magical gift that I've been given and that I like to pass on. Sure. And it's open doors. And now I was working on some of these illustrations at this time, and here's this invite to a snail-shaped house in the jungle. So I thought, I'll go to Mexico, I'll go for a month, and then I'll come back and figure out this whole looking-for-home thing. Little did I know I would walk into a situation where I was with very kindred spirits, and little by little, like the darkness of the pandemic and like the avalanche of, of grief and of just like the uncertainty and the unhappiness was starting to melt away and I was starting to feel happy. And it was like hard to own up to that at first because you know, you'd get these little glimmers, but it's like, you don't want to be like, yay, and then get like, you know, you buried further in. Yeah. yeah. But it was like becoming stronger every day. I was feeling more like myself, like the people that were there, they were very kindred artists, kindred thinkers. They were exploring similar themes. Parts of myself that I had forgotten about were like starting to become amplified and coming back out. And I started feeling myself kind of like coming back into myself. And I started entertaining this idea of like, and they really wanted me to stay there. It was like an artist residency, very informal. But the notion was like, come live here, live here for free, as long as you're creating your art. That's the rule. Okay. I need that. <laughs> And so I that someday. Yeah, I mean it you were you were collected. It it was it was I mean it's still available I guess but the the dark side like if you fast forward <laughs> almost 2 years is that just as clear as the jungle was that it wanted me there it was just as clear that it was time to move on when I got infected by a flesh-eating parasite which wow. explains the uh the lesion on my left cheek and on my right hand. Mm. Um they have since been vanquished. I spent this um, past Pride Month, I got 20 pricks in the butt. That's uh, injections of glucan team daily. Uh, 20 so, daily? No, 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 one, oh. one a day. One a okay, day. for yeah, 20 yeah. days. Okay. For 20 days. Well, for 30 days, I got the weekends off. <laughs> oh, <all right>. Praise <laughs> the Lord. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, that vanquished them, but the skin is very slow to heal. Like that's, It's been like a month and a half, and it's still not looking very great. So it's a slow process. Um, but I learned a lot from that, like also as a psychedelic maturation process is how I like to think of it because I used to look for entities with my head up in space and then as I got older I started looking for it in the body. I started like looking for the visions more as like dissociative flights from things that are happening in the body and the, the kind of the various collectives and ecologies that live inside us and then I started recognizing things in the garden like in my environment oh wait there's so many alien dimensions to the earth especially mm -hmm. living in the jungle you get to encounter so many miraculous incarnations of this earth where you're just like like one night um, my girlfriend out there had this great 
gift for finding creatures that don't <laughs> formally exist. <laughs> like at one point she whistled and I came over and she found this grasshopper nymph that was that was hanging upside down, crawling out of its own skin very slowly. They do this five times in their lifetime till they get to the final size and mm. their final form, but it looked like something from Naked Lunch from like Cronenberg, <laughs> like the, the mugwumps dangling. And and like I was working on this book at the time called Impatient Transformations. So then to find this kind of manifestation of that uh, was just like mind blowing. And just like we were like filming it and staring at it and, and all this kind of stuff. So I was really like getting interested in kind of the the maturation process of like the alien ecology of this earth and having lived in cities for years, being now in this space where just like tapped into the soundscapes and, and all the non-human beings with which we cohabitate until of course the boundary dissolution got very real and some of them um, found their way across the boundaries of my skin and into my so so basically this is a parasite it's called leash mania okay it's uh largely due to this deforestation effort because they're building a railroad across the yucatan train right. and the earth doesn't put a sign out there that says don't do this or else earth is like f around and find out you yeah know? so when we found out so <laughs> this little sand fly it's about like a third the size of a mosquito it carries some of them carry this parasite and then when they drink your blood they deposit the parasite the parasite gets greeted by your immune cells and then it just goes sleep and then it takes the immune cells and wears them like skin and then oh, propagates wow. inside of it so and then you get this what f at first seemed like a bug bite but got right. bigger and then like i tried a mayan remedy and that didn't work i did that for five weeks and then i decided okay i guess i'll go for the injections but i i thought that was like you go in and you're like all right i'll take the injections and they were like all right uh you're on the list we'll let you know so that was another like month and a half of oh, waiting wow. not knowing how long it was going to be and yeah so i'm in the aftermath of that so that that was fast forwarding through the whole time in the jungle you had the, the foreshadowing of a cat with it though it's true there was a little um the cutest little cat i called him little eo well he called himself little eo because he showed up and he was like eo, eo, eo. cute little cat who had some little tumors that kept getting bigger and he was like he would like shake his head out like a little Cronenbergian lawn sprinkler would like fling blood and pieces yeah. of flesh onto the walls and it was kind of like well, he was a little cute little horror show and so we took him to a vet to say like what what's up with his little tumors you know so like yeah what is that and they were like well let's test it oh this is leash mania that's where we first learned about this thing could you have gotten it from the cat you can't get it directly from the cat it would the the cat was a host, and so it's possible that the, you know, like the little flies fed on it and then carried it on. Okay. okay. But there was there was like, at least five months between euthanizing the cat and me getting infected and somebody else also getting infected, which it's still possible that it has that long of an incubation period. Right. But the cat got it from somewhere too. You know, like it's it's out so, there. So there was nothing you could do to save the cat. No, there wasn't. I mean, if there was, it would have been costly and time-consuming, and he was really, like, riddled with it. Like, oh. It was, like, all over. And it might have even been visceral. So that was a, a sad chapter in there, but um, 
Yeah, then it got even sadder when I got it. <laughs> but luckily it's not like... There's a visceral version, which apparently they don't have out in the Yucatan, is what I was assured of. Because that's a, a potentially lethal case, but in oh. this case... You know, this is a thing too, like I consider myself a bardo bard, like a storyteller of liminal spaces. And what often happens is that there are beings that don't have a voice in the world and that need more awareness. So like Leishmania is one of these things. <laughs> so I feel in a way it shows me so as to spread the awareness of these things. I had a similar thing happen with uh, tarantulas. This is in a different jungle. This, this is, is in, one of my favorite stories. This is in Peru. Uh, there was a... Somebody had gone to the outdoor showers and they came back and they were like, there's really big tarantulas, like the size of a loofah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like... What uh, a comparison. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, I, I almost grabbed, grabbed the wrong thing, you know, to wash myself with. Easy mistake to make. Sudded myself up with the tarantula. And so the shaman is like, okay, claro. And he like goes out there. It was already starting to twilight, so I came with him and I shone a torch, like a flashlight. You know, the English would say torch, but right. like a flashlight. Uh, and he goes out there with the, the handle of a broom, and there's like two big, like, hand-sized tarantulas and he like smacks one of them and it like falls off off the wall and it balls up like a fist you know on the ground and the other one got away and i distinctly remember it felt like obviously it doesn't have a neck or a head to turn but it felt like it was like it was pissed off <laughs> and it was looking at me like <laughs> <laughs> and so 30 minutes later we drank ayahuasca and it started to come on and my inner vision becomes wallpapered with tarantulas mm -hmm. and they're encroaching on me and this one ambassador comes to the foreground and and basically I watch my mind or like some conception of my mind like a piece of origami folding itself into the shape of the spider's mind in order to like communicate back and forth this like trans-dimensional trans-interspecies diplomacy and it's basically pissed off you know it's like you stood by in aid of that murder you shone a light and i'm like yo yo i'm so sorry like we are gringos we don't know the ecosystem like we're stupid like it's definitely on us like if we would have bumped into you and you would have bitten us like that would have been on us but you know this shaman was looking out for us i know there's like a, a long-standing respect that has been that has been broken like what can i do like what can i do to make this right i i can tell your story i can spread awareness of the spiders and the spider liked this idea so much that it took off its eyes like a crown and it handed it to me and it put it on my head like vr goggles <laughs> and i saw the world through spider eyes like a eightfold kaleidoscope unified in this like kaleidoscopic vision where the edges were burning with this inhuman firelight and and the actual vision was this almost like slow trailing solarized tai chi motion almost like this other planet like i was looking at mars or something hmm. and so to this day i still speak for the spiders that's a arachnid so, so why, did the, why did the shaman kill him in the first place shamans are humans too like we like to think of them as these like wise men or these superheroes but or at least connected to nature better where he might just chew yeah. the spider away yeah i think they're not as i mean i'm sure there are shamans who are very like they would just go and the spiders would run off 
but a lot of it is like living in that kind of situation. Life and death, the membrane between the two is much thinner, yeah. I think. Like, there was an instant, and this is funny because this ties into like an LSD experience I had once where um, I was at a festival and I, I, I did LSD maybe like once every six years. It wasn't like a regular thing. And it was always this sort of like 12 hours of infinity. That's a lot, you know? And uh, this one night I'm sitting by this, this lake and suddenly the sky opens up and it's the dawn. And I'm like, it's 2 a.m. How is it the dawn? And the dawn goes, the dawn, and slinks away. And then somewhere else in the sky, the dawn comes. It's almost like this magician, like voguing, like this marquee, the dawn. And I'm like, it's 2 a.m. Like, what are you doing? And it would go away again and be like, the, the dawn. And this kept going on and on. And so I wrote this poem, it's like, uh, All through the night, the sky faked the dawn. The con of dawn, what's going on? And I can't be held accountable for counting insurmountable amounts of stars. Some of them aren't even there. Others burned out long ago. Still on display and on delay. Andale, andale, light years away. Nice. So one night in the jungle, there's this rooster who in the middle of the night starts it's like it's 2 a.m. there's no way so this rooster is also like tripping out and they're the dawn and the rooster's like well let me get to work and this one night the rooster starts going off and I and then it realized it's folly it goes and the next morning there was rooster stew because like just like that the shaman has just got tired of this rooster <laughs> crowing in the middle of the night so snapped its neck and that was breakfast wow. so that so there's these moments where you're just like and you know like you're, you're going through these ceremonies every other day or something where you're like going into this space that's supposedly like bardo or like vine of the souls vine right, of the dead right. and so you have this sense of like you're really close to like the the jungle is so alive and yet so full of death death is so close and then there's also like the shaman was once a soldier and you see him sitting there in the dark with these like powerful hands that will hold out in front of him and he'll like ball them into fists and you can hear the, the knuckles cracking and the thought comes to mind it's like hands that could heal hands that could hurt it's such a thin line you know between yeah. between medicine and sorcery between between healing and harm like it's you at least I am like so acutely aware of that liminal space and in a sense maybe it's you as the onlooker that's holding the balance like it's you yourself like there's the healer and then there's the healy but both are in a in kind of like a mutual exchange you know like yeah. they're both doing equal amounts of of work in that or carrying equal amounts of responsibility how many different hallucinogens have you done um, I could count them on both hands. You know, <laughs> there's like, I've definitely the basics. You know, like mushrooms, ayahuasca, DMT, LSD. I did 2CB a couple of times. Not sure what that is. It's like a research chemical. They say it's kind of like synthetic mescaline or oh. like a mix between like LSD and MDMA. Okay. 
MDMA, I guess, doesn't count as a hallucinogen, but I've, I've tried it a couple of times. Salvia divinorum, that was one at some point that was interesting. Um, Amanita muscaria, though I wouldn't necessarily call it a hallucinogen. It was like more like a clear drunkenness, but hmm. I'm naturally susceptible to... I have a vivid imagination, so visions can prompt themselves even on a cup of chamomile tea if <laughs> necessary. <laughs> Okay. What, what, what do you think gels with you the most? Mm, it really depends on different times. Like, in the last year, this particular kind of LSD that I got to do somewhat regularly, uh, I really enjoyed because it felt very manageable. I felt... Like, oftentimes with mushrooms, it's like it becomes a very... like a bodily confusion that takes over where it could take me like 20 minutes to figure out that I need to take a dump. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's just that, you know? Whereas like on this acid, it would be like, oh, something is shifting. I must unload my bowels, you know? Like <laughs> things like that. There, I mean, ayahuasca has been like an amazing teacher, especially like in my 20s. Because I was, I kind of got there early, like in 2003 is when I was introduced to it. And it was like very much like a growth portal for myself. Uh, but I'm not like, don't get me wrong, I'm not like a casual psychedelics taker. I'm, uh, I don't do it in social settings. I don't do it right, often. Right. But I always get a lot out of it. Like it's definitely been... That's a, probably because you don't do it often. Probably. And because I... I take it very seriously. Yeah. Like every experience, I could probably recount every experience I've had or I've been able to mine some insight or artwork or, or writing or something from it. You know? I was trying to describe to somebody recently that the approach is everything when you do any kind of psychedelic. It really yeah. makes or breaks the experience. Yeah, for me also, I think of it as um, as like a VR experience, but as vegetal reality, where you put on the introspectacles, which are like the leaf-shaped lenses of the plant, and you get to see through the plant's eyes in a way, just like with the spiders, you know. You right, on. right. Um, but that's what what a plant does, right? Like it photosynthesizes. So there's this synthetic light that plays out a kind of simulation through which you can somewhere on the intersection of the virtual and the spiritual, you get to experience your hopes, your fears, your dreams, your, you know, kind of like a, a virtual playground or a virtual battleground where you get to work out in a safe container. You get to safely suffer and you get to safely enjoy the rewards of, just like in a dream space, as Natalie is very well aware of as an avid dreamer, that you get to work through things and actually gain experience without ever having to go anywhere. Right. And then you can come out of that feeling clearer or... Because um, it used to be, like I said, like I was much more with my head up in space with it. Mm -hmm. And as my maturation process happened over time, there was one instance with ayahuasca where it like opened up the, the veils and there's like the astral plane gridded before you with little 
little planets like submerged like ice cream scoops in the distance and it's like shall we venture onwards and i'm like well I actually kind of need to like work on some practical things around here and then she closes the curtain it's like fine let's look at that you know it's like the genie in the bottle is like whatever you your wish is my command let's work on what you got to work with so it's been much more about like grounding things out finding i guess what you'd call practical magic you know it's like yeah. finding the enchantment but applying it in integrated and practical ways in everyday life i don't think i've ever asked you this have we talked about this did i ever ask you about belladonna i don't know if we've talked it's not about obviously belladonna. it's not a popular psychedelic but i don't know if you've had any experience or known anyone who has i've known somebody who has and who had that great story so this is a great story <laughs> what, what's the drug first of all so, Belladonna, it's with you. Oh, Belladonna, okay. Yeah. Belladonna, yeah. Uh, for some reason, I heard Villadonna. <laughs> no, no. Belladonna, I mean, it's a, it's a nightshade? Is it yeah, yeah. nightshade it's category? Poisonous. Yeah, it's poisonous. Highly toxic. Highly toxic, deliriant. Yeah. Um, I worked in the early 2000s in a pawn shop in South Florida, and one of my co-workers was a great storyteller who had done a lot of drugs. And... At one point, he told me about belladonna, and they had brewed up like a big Coke bottle full of belladonna tea, and they would drink Whoa. it. And he was like, "Yeah, man, I'd like sitting there, and I'd be eating this bag of chips, and you could feel the grease on your fingers and the crinkly mirrored inside of the bag. But every time you'd lift it, when it reached your lips, there were no chips, but you couldn't <laughs> stop eating them." He's like, "Same thing, smoking cigarettes, get to your lips, you'd be like." nothing there you know so he's like so i'm sitting in this car and i'm eating these chips that don't exist and smoking these cigarettes that don't exist and my friend mike shows up and he knocks on the window and i roll the window down and mike goes hey man i just scored 300 dollars worth of crack do you want to smoke this with me and he goes no nah, man i'm drinking this belladonna tea and i keep eating these ch he brings the chips to his lips eating these ah oh, man these chips that don't exist <laughs> and he's like and my friend mike was out of town that week <laughs> so it's like it's extremely delirious where yeah. you can't discern just like with i guess classically what they would say about the tura like if what i had in the jungle that time was indeed towei or the tura it wasn't to that level of delirium but what had happened to me at some point was there was this a regression in time for about nine hours that happened to me and a few other participants but that doesn't mean we were physically time traveling it was like a cognitive reset mm -hmm. and the way that manifested was that earlier in the day we had got my sister and I had gotten on this little boat across the river to meet this shaman to see like what it was all about and if we could do a ceremony there that night and the shaman of the Yagwa tribe he was like sitting next to this like big pile of bananas and he was just slowly like extinguishing mosquitoes on his leg as though they were little universes he was vanquishing and we had a translator there and he seemed very like he's like yeah it's just one plant takes a few hours to make it's yahe but it's not ayahuasca which you know that's like saying uh you're on uh 
where did the road go, but this is not Soraya, right? This is the host, but this is not Soraya. Like, it doesn't add up. <laughs> okay. But I was curious because the way he described it, he's like, yeah, you can, like, astral travel on it, and it's for healing and all these... The things he was describing sounded like my ayahuasca experiences, and okay. I wanted to share that with my sister. So I was like, well, let's try it out. But I, I wanted to, like, there's a part of me that wanted to impress this shaman or something, so I wanted to bring my didgeridoo, but I'd forgotten it. So I was like, I'll bring it tonight. And so for the ceremony, I did bring it over, and I played it at some point. And at some point in the middle of it, my sister and I are standing by the riverbank at night. She's feeling really nauseous. I call it hypnosia, because it was like a hypnotic nausea that would like overcome, where like space seemed very discombobulated and um, non-Euclidean in a way. There were like moments when I would like sit back and feel like I was falling back ten miles into a void or something. But it was really just. You know, <laughs> Uh, and so we're staring at the sky where we had in the daytime gone like rowing in the river at sunset and you'd see these little swells on the water and you'd kind of guess like where the pink dolphins would breach the surface. Pink dolphins sounds really romantic, but they kind of look like dolphins with vitiligo, like just like their skin <laughs> is kind of like blotchy with pink spots. But it was kind of a magical thing because at sunset the sky is pink, the clouds are pink dolphins, it's just like pink, 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 you know. But at night, we were like looking in the sky and they were like shooting stars and it was kind of like, now we're looking for pink dolphins in the sky and then the, the little shaman guy came up with his unibrow and he looked kind of like a mix between Frida Kahlo and Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> and he came up and he goes, <laughs> and I was like, what does he want? She's like, I think he wants you to play the didgeridoo. And I was like, yeah, uh, maybe in a little bit. And he's like, <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go in and play the didgeridoo for him. But then on the way back, we had brought these, these British kids that were in the resort with us. And we were like, we're on the ceremony. You want to come with us? And they came along. And they were like, one of them was like trying to grab the life vest. They thought it was their suitcase. Another one was trying to take a picture with a water bottle. And then in the boat, this one guy, he starts looking through his hand. He's like standing up and they're like, sit down, Jamie. You have to sit down. It's dangerous. And he's like, I'm looking for the oar. He's, he's like raking his finger through his hand. I'm looking for the oar. They're like, we're not in the rowboats anymore. That was nine hours ago. And in the meantime, my mind is dissociating into space where like, the universe above me, like the stars, the sky, are like a universe of sadness because I forgot my didgeridoo. <laughs> I forgot my didgeridoo. I guess I'll have to get it tomorrow, but I was so sad that I'd forgotten it. And we arrive at the place and I just grab it because it was next to me the whole time and went on with it. But in that moment, later I looked at it, I was like, that was nine hours ago that I forgot the didgeridoo. That was right. nine hours ago that he was in the boat. Mm. So this really weird, like, cognitive time reset. Interesting. Every time you tell me about that, that I'm looking for the ore part, I lose it. I don't know why that's so funny yeah. to me. Well, then the, the funniest part is we get back to the resort, and there's this one area that's kind of like the, the dining room mess hall. And there were some other people there. There was this French woman and some, I don't know, other people from other places. And so we're walking in there and we sit down at the table and I'm under the impression that the boat is getting prepped for us to go to the shaman's place. We just came back, mind you, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm just waiting for somebody to go like, all right, we're ready to go. And they're kind of like chatting a little bit. And all of a sudden, the French woman looks over at me and she goes, do you have answers? I'm like, what? Do 
do you have answers? I don't know what the question is. <laughs> you went to the ceremony. Do you have answers? And I look over at the others and I'm like, are we leaving or not? They're like, we just got back. And I'm like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> so it was, it was disorienting in the next morning still. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and just feeling this like, brujaria, you know, this like witchcraft, like Amazonian witchcraft kind of feel. And I was like, well, that definitely wasn't ayahuasca. Whatever it was, it was very disorienting. Probably Toei. Definitely not Belladonna. Hmm. But yeah, that was a mystery sidestep. Well, I, <laughs> I, I had to ask because did I tell you that my technically my first trip was Belladonna no. at the age of three? What? <laughs> Whoa. It's not something... I, I, I'm surprised I haven't told you. I don't really tell anybody because I don't know how to... It's just it's a strange story because I mean I was a toddler so. Um, so you brewed up some belladonna. You know as you do when you're three years right. old, you're yeah. experimenting. Yeah. With, <laughs> you know I had, a, I had a choice of psychedelics and I was like y'all, no because I, I I had I've always had a weird eye issues. I was you know born that way. It was astigmatism and a bunch of weird stuff. So I routinely had to go see an ophthalmologist and uh, this was in like the old part of Minneapolis. So it was kind of an old old school sort of ophthalmologist and we didn't know until uh well until it was too late that he'd used belladonna to to dilate my pupils and it didn't hit right away was that a, was that a regular <laughs> medicine that they yeah, used for this? so really? apparently they used to use it regularly so this was early 80s or mid 80s right around 85 because it was three um I'm trying to remember when that was, but, you know, my parents just assumed they were using the, I, I'm not sure what the chemical is now, I, I forget every time I try to think of it, but they just assumed they were using the, the standard that had come out by then, but this ophthalmologist was still using the old belladonna drops that they'd been using, I think, since like the 20s or something like wow. that. It's a very old concoction that is known to cause certain people, especially sensitive people, to have symptoms, so... But for some reason, it was delayed. Uh, I don't think I had anything immediately happen to me. It wasn't until that, like, later in, like, early morning and then into the mid-morning. So probably maybe 12 hours after I had seen this doctor. And I woke up, sort of. I don't remember the train. Just to be clear, I, have a, I had eidetic memory back when I was, you know, a little kid. It started fading around, like, adolescence. But everything is like still clear in my memory, so that's mm. why I can speak of it the way I can. Um, but I, I remember where we were living, and I remember where I was lying, and how I woke up, and everything, because I wasn't waking up completely. I wasn't waking out of my dream. I was in this state of I, you know, I was three. I had no idea what was happening to me. I had no way way to describe this sort of psychotic experience I was having was very dissociated but also going into my body I was able to see the valves of my heart working wow. I was seeing my heart pumping because I was I had tachycardia from the effects of the belladonna like it was it was hitting I had this horrible headache like I had all these weird symptoms going on but it was like my body was sort of like sending me on this like inner journey wow. in a way a child should never experience their body <laughs> and I went into that was the first panic attack I've ever had because I was just absolutely 
terrified out of my mind and I started screaming for my dad because what else are you gonna do but I couldn't stop seeing it whether my eyes were closed or open all I could see was the inner workings of my body all at once like this overwhelming sense of everything that was happening to me in a way that I couldn't describe to my dad when he came you know up and he, he didn't know what to do you know it was little kid daughters all talking about her the things that are working in the I was able to point them all out when we went to the uh, a doctor's appointment I was like yeah it was like this it was these parts here in my heart and like you know but it where did like the this belladonna touch you <laughs> <laughs> so it, but it was so much more than that because it was that that um indescribable experience with it like that sort of um you know aura that, yeah. that comes with the experience it was it was like a dream but i was still awake and i was unable to get myself out of it while also seeing like these intricate parts of my body because my body was freaking out I can it was a poison you know yeah i can relate to that in a way through like fever dreams when i was a child and also there, yeah. were, there were certain recurring visions that i would have that would make me feel like out of control it would be like the image of two identical limousines that where the doors didn't line up. They were identical, but it was like impossible. Almost like a Escher-like That thing. is such a, like a, it's or, such a weird thing that kids can, yeah, I used to get stuff, I, I can't think of anything specific like, like that. Swing, yeah. like a swing that's going round and round and round, and I couldn't stop <laughs> yeah. it with my mind. You know, I'd be like, no, stop it, stop it, and I it would like, keep going. That, yeah. Or this image that I associated with nausea, or if I'd get sick, it'd be these like really stringy arms, like stringy fingers holding like, a lung or like a, a piece of like a vital organ or something I that was really, too heavy that sounds for familiar that kind of thing like, like those kinds sick. of bodily yeah. kind of like anom anomalous <laughs> imageries where just like yeah i mean it's kind of come back to like cronenberg like that body, body horror kind like of surreal kind of yeah surreal and cerebral and it, it was like that but it was because i used to get stuff like that now that you mentioned that it I'm gonna have to think about that because I know I had stuff like that 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 sort of fever dream like abstraction yeah. like your body's trying to work out what's wrong with it and also heal and then it's you know being human you start to try to come up with like correlates or whatever like yeah and maybe maybe it's like because I think of this in psychedelic space like the visions or the the visuals that people get are like a custom language that the, the yeah. body concocts in order to like portray something or relay something to your psychology you know like a lot of times it's like the body is trying to tell you something but we can't decipher it or yeah. or it's yeah. like uses it, like jangled symbols especially yeah, when you're especially when you're a kid and you, you don't, don't even know like and you haven't gotten it all like by the time you know we're adults so we've kind of got our symbols worked out you know that's just part of us yeah. now but like when that, you're a kid you're still working it out and this is weird uh, like associations like who knows where you got the association with limos <laughs> yeah that's so weird but like for instance like that woman uh from the ted talk the stroke of genius yeah was like a neuroscientist that uh -huh. had a a stroke and could watch it all from the inside because she knew which parts are being affected and what's mm. happening yeah like as a kid you don't have that jill bolt i think her name is yeah as a kid you're just like in this you're like adam in the garden before yeah. anything is named and you're like mm -hmm. Your brains do just like those weird interconnections that you're making as a kid is very synesthetic yeah but this was the opposite of that it was like extreme clarity of what was going on in my body i didn't know anatomy i didn't understand any of that but it blew my mind when we went to a clinic visit 
maybe like a year later and they have the cross section of the heart and the valves and everything like that and i started panicking because i was seeing what i'd seen in my dream except for you know it was very fleshy and bloody and gross and whatever in the dream in the not dream but the psychedelic vision but you know it was like this clean uh clinical cross-section of a heart i was like i started panicking i couldn't even be in the room because well what's trippy because we were before we started recording the three of us were kind of talking about eric wargo and Uh precognition and time loops oh yeah and the notion that uh, like he he puts forth this idea for instance if you have a precognition of something in a dream a lot of times it's a precognition of something that you'll read or encounter later on so for instance you have a dream about a tiger and then afterwards you look up symbolism for the tiger right, right. and then that influences the dream in yeah. a retrocausal act so in a sense maybe you seeing the chart in the doctor's office is what retrocausally caused yeah. that integral vision and possibly like the, the time loop but it was still too closing. i didn't like it because it was inaccurate to what i saw because it was a drawing and what i had seen was flesh and real you know what i mean it was like three-dimensional parts of my body functioning and like my heart pounding so i was able to see like the seeing like the like the 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 valves like weird from the top like the kind of like gaping and closing and gaping and it was just like in this extreme kind of like house md detail yeah (laughs) it was kind of like this traveling through my body but i couldn't stop it but it was like my body in that sort of altered state was also trying to tell me it was in danger and it was just doing it so vividly that i was unable to shut that out and my dad came up and he grabs me and he he, uh, had me stand up and i was able to like function and stuff so he had me follow him closely down the stairs and he's all you know he didn't know what to do he's like all right i'll get you some lucky charms i'm like i do (laughs) not want to eat right now bring you back to your senses with some sugary (laughs) we gotta take a quick break Okay. And we'll be right back. Quick mid-show break here. Uh, first, some contact info and then a uh, recommendation. If you want to contact me, it's contact at com. In fact, if you go to com, you will find emails for where to send stories, uh, you know, this email, my snail mail address, uh, links to all our social media, how to become a Patreon for only $3 a month, get extra content all month long, and uh, every show back to the very first one over 10 years ago. So, um, as for recommendation this week, I am going to recommend a game, not something I usually do. Um, I'm going to recommend Oxenfree. Oxenfree is an interesting uh, game, I think, out for all the major systems. It came out quite a few years ago, maybe 2016 or something like that. I've probably mentioned it on the show before. It's sort of a... uh, uh, choose your path type of game. So you, there's not a lot of action or anything like that, but it has some really cool concepts in it. And, uh, in a way it feels like, uh, it might be how our universe really works. You know, like, like as you play the game, you have to say and react to different things and you only have so many choices, even though it seems like you have plenty of choices, the paths only vary slightly depending on the choices you make. But it, it's interesting because it's also a time loop. And so it has some, some really neat stuff with radio frequencies and things like that. And I bring it up now because they just released Oxenfree 2. And I finally got through the whole game. Neither of these games are particularly long. I think maybe three hours or so. And uh, Oxenfree 2 is okay. Honestly, I'm a little disappointed. 
but it may actually, you know, some people may prefer the second one. I don't know. The first one you're playing as like a late teen uh, with her friends and some early 20s, uh, like her older brother's ex-girlfriend, stuff like that. So it's it's that sort of a feel, whereas this new one is a middle-aged, uh, you're playing as a middle-aged woman, and uh, there's only one other character you're mostly interacting with through the whole game who is a middle-aged man. And it does, it, I don't know, it loses something of the flavor that the first one had, I think, because of that. Um, I don't know, it's like... Uh, I can't really explain what put my finger on it, but the the concepts and stuff are still very cool. Uh, this one uh, brings out the idea of a cult around all the weird stuff happening, and the story on both of them are really it's, it's good. It's good. I just think I prefer the first one over the second one. And the second one took so long to come out, so so long to come out. It uh, was really frustrating because it just uh, kept lingering. The company that made it got bought up by Netflix. And uh, it is out for everything, I think, but Xbox, which is weird. But they say eventually it's going to come out for Xbox. Uh, um, I got it on Steam. It was really cheap. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. Oxenfree and Oxenfree 2. Definitely worth the uh, play just for the story. But like I said, it's not action-oriented at all. So, you know, it's mostly kind of just choosing your path as you go. All right. We'll be back to the show right after this. Looking for something to do after Halloween is over? Are you into the strange, bizarre, and unusual? On November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the Strange Realities Conference is coming back to Nashville, Tennessee, and streaming online. Come join us for three days exploring mysteries, supernatural, the occult, weird history, and more. Featuring lectures, presentations, and workshops by Tim Banal, Zach Hunt, Melvin Vance, Bryn Collier, Tobias Wayland, Brent Rains, Joshua Cutchen, Kiki Dombrowski, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Christopher Ernst, Aaron Gullius, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Mallory Semwitzki, Soraya Azkap, and special guest Steve Berg as your Master of Ceremonies. Make sure to join us for the fun and informative weekend online and at SIR Nashville November 3rd and 4th and online only November 5th. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. So Thank we're you. here with Natalie and the ungoogleable Michelangelo. I actually got that word out. All right. Nice. And uh, you can continue if you want, Natalie. So uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, it was it was just kind of sweet of Lucky my dad charms. because he. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was kind of helpful because it was like we're gonna. He kind of knew what to do in a way. He was like, "All right, we're just gonna have a normal breakfast. Uh, we're gonna right. ground you mm-hmm. in this moment." And I'm really grateful to him for that because my mom wasn't there. He didn't know what to do. He couldn't call her and be like. What do I do? Or kids right, freaking out right. on a psychedelic trip? I don't. But he also understood. Both of them did. They knew what was happening. Hmm. They're like they called the officer. My mom was f- furious. She's like, "Did you? You? What are your? What are in those drops?" And then they told her. And she's like, "I knew it." And she wow. was just furious. And she was like threatening to like you know. I don't think they used them past that point because they they told she said what I was experiencing and they didn't know if they should take me to the ER or, or right. what but it did right, start right, to pass right. it, it faded within an hour or so like so are you dead now I have no idea okay but I do I do think that that had some effect on me going forward oh, probably yeah like a permanent 
a stain on my brain in a way. Like that was, I think that was sort of a pivotal moment because after that, in a way. Well, I also had like you know vivid dreams before that and stuff, but I can't imagine that it really, yeah, you know, <laughs> dissuaded those. So it, it, you know, I never forgot. Like even thinking about it now, I I see those visions like they just happen. Yeah, like they really got into my neurons and just stayed there. And that was part of my fascination with like anatomy and mm. understanding the human body after that was just like, wow, like, is this something that you can experience? Is this, you know, I don't know, becoming more after that. I don't know. I think that might've been the point when I became really interoceptive. I just became very hyper aware of everything in my body, like it's placement and what it was. And so it was very, uh, important to me to learn the names of those things and, yeah you know yeah. be able to identify them which is interesting because that's the same thing that happened with your psychic space in a way like the different encounters of yeah. characters in your dreams and then yeah. it's like well i better get to know their names and, <laughs> and get to know them better if this is something you get i'm gonna live with this is a part of yeah of my exactly. body and my mind you know? and my first approach was that this is you know just like seeing my heart this has to be a part of my, my mind my brain and i need to understand that but in so doing it seems like i also met things that were not necessarily part of me mm. but like mm. transient uh, visitors and that kind of thing and that's that's what freaked me out so. yeah well i think that's that's similar to what i was saying about like being a bardo bard is that there are things that like i came up with the term recently in new york of uh, uh, the folklore acts i speak for the folklore so like there's there's you know there are right. things that n everything wants to be acknowledged and seen and heard mm -hmm. and I mean you have a gift with language and with imagery and things like that so it makes sense for things to come through and find these hosts in a way and want to inspire like that's their gift to you is like here's some inspiration but on the other hand it's also like you have to ghost bust them you know what I mean it's embarrassing to talk about this but back in 2011 when I really started going into it when I was seeing sort of um, potential evidence for these things having a, an external origin. Um, there was one in particular who I had been encountering in dreams and would occasionally encounter when I would talk to him. He, at one point, it had been a few months at that point. I was like, well, why do you, you know, why do you keep coming back? And he's like, because I don't remember how he phrased it. I w really wish I had it in front of me, but it was something like, because you're so meticulous and, and uh, methodical about this and like you're trying to figure it out and stuff. So he's like, maybe you can figure out me. Maybe yeah. you can figure out who I am because I don't remember that well. And it, and it was wow. kind of like this heartbreaking moment. I'm like, I don't know if this is me or if this does have some sort of external origin, but it was, it was upsetting in a way. Cause I'm like, you know, this is, I don't know. And I don't know if I should go forward with something like that. I don't know, like that, that existentially, um, well, well, that's why I feel like the ghost busting element, like if you, for instance, if you render this being in a drawing or something like that, like now there is an acknowledgement of it. There is a mapping of it. Yeah. And yet it's now just like what we're talking about with the bicameral mind, like the voice in the head, which had to be obeyed is now like written on a tablet is now yeah. like a face looking at you from a page so it's now separated from you in a way of course they'll probably still recur in dreams they're like i really like that portrait can we do another one <laughs> let me pose for you you know because like, like you had those those easy. beings that the the three 
yeah. I think you called them, which was the Dutch word for three, which is interesting. Um, although it's spelled slightly different. Or, 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 or three. Well, I learned later it was um, Old English for suffer. For suffer. What? Like suffer your fate. Dree, dree one's fate. Wow. Suffer. Hmm. Yeah. Like that's what's so interesting to me about these realms is that you have an experience that's like a raw, original experience. And then there's so many questions that come from that encounter with that mystery that you want to learn more. And in your effort of plowing through the databases of culture, you you kind of find this, you call it a skein of association, but might mm -hmm. as well be a skin of associations that you like wrap around this mystery where now all of a sudden there's like old English influences or like fey folklore that comes into it. Yeah. The three, because there were three entities at, at any given mm. time. They're sort of like the... the uh, um, yeah, like the fates. It was fate, kind of like that sort of. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's fate too. Fate and fate. Those words are. Yeah, are, are exactly. Yeah. And it's just strange because it was only like two and a half when that was happening. You know, so it wasn't like I, I could. That's so wild. Even unconsciously so start young. to wrap that up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it was like an encounter with the uh, what are they called the the. Mm, it's the three fate, uh, in in Norse folklore. Why am I drawing a blank? They're the ones that decide like Macbeth, fate. The ones in Macbeth. The one? Are they? They might be. Uh, they share based one on eye. Them. Uh, are they, are they the ones that that weave like the threads and stuff? Yes. Yeah. 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 I forget the name. Aren't they just called the Fates? They um, might be. No. Oh, the Furies. Norns. Norns. They're the three no, Norns no, that I that. Uh, I knew that. <laughs> yeah. So like. <laughs> It made me think of that because it was always kind of like this recurring uh, hmm. theme of three entities. And then, yeah, the, the whole dream. But I was screaming dream over and over and over again. And I've had a few dreams where, I mean, I don't want to make wild claims, but it seems like Old English comes up in dreams multiple times. Hmm. Hmm. Just words that fit perfectly with, you know, Old English phrases and that kind of thing. So, but again, you know, I was only two and a half years old. I'd had no exposure to that. Nobody knew yeah. what was going on. Um, but that's why I say it's. I, I know the Belladonna wasn't what made me a weird kid. Oh, <laughs> right, just, right. You don't want to give Belladonna eye drops to a kid that's already. Yeah. That. I mean, maybe that was like an initiation yeah, that maybe. later on uh, um, opened you up further to these things. So, as we're running, starting to run out of time here, how did you uh, end up coming to New York? What, I mean, obviously, you got a flesh, flesh eating virus. Fle yeah, flesh eating parasites, definitely. Um, you know, put a. And you said, "What's the opposite of where I am now?" <laughs> yeah. So, so the first thing I did is I landed in Miami because my dad needed. We had a little bridge between caretakers for a couple weeks, so I thought that was a good place to land. Air conditioning, you know, all that stuff, the luxuries of the modern world. Uh, and then I was preparing for this show in New York. So this is kind of interesting because while I was in the jungle, I was approached by this comedian Shane Moss who wanted an introduction to his new comedy show called A Better Trip that he's touring with right now. And he wanted a Terrence McKenna introduction. And I'm, mm. I, I'm the world's foremost Terrence McKenna impersonator. So he hired me to do this uh, introduction uh, where it's Terrence as a bard in the bardo broadcasting from the bodiless beyond. And he performed this show with this intro at a place called the Athenaeum in New York City, which is the first psychedelic library and social club and event space that's fully member-supported in Midtown Manhattan. 
and the two girls, Kat and Susie, who run this place, two women, I should say, the two women who run this place, um, heard this, and, and they were huge McKenna fans, and they were like, what is that? How, how, what, who? And he was like, oh, it's this guy, the ungoogleable Michelangelo. So they reached out to me and commissioned me to write and narrate a Terrence McKenna voiceover to tell the origin story and the mission statement of this business, which you can find on YouTube if you look up Psychedelic Athenaeum or Psychedelic Assembly, which is the name of their company. Um, and so I did that with them, and then as part of that too, we started talking about putting on an art show in their space, because I had all this artwork that I'd been making in the jungle. Uh, that I I wanted to share with the world, and I wanted to do like a storytelling performance. What, and what presentation. format of art? So what I these are <clears throat> paintings. Okay. Um, and I use this uh, technique called pareidolia, which the word pareidolia is just the uh, the tendency for perception to find meaningful patterns in random stimuli, like faces right. in the clouds, Jesus on toast, that sort of thing. <laughs> no, those are real. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's called pareidolatry, is what I call that, when you believe that that's actually Jesus on toast. <laughs> so I ended up um, putting a lot of these pieces, which I call divined designs, and I did a presentation where for two hours straight I talked um, about the adventures and ideas behind the creation of these pieces and like this whole kind of the philosophy of pareidolia as a demonic interface. So. Mm -hmm using this technique as a way to kind of prompt the unconscious or the disowned and estranged parts of the self to the foreground and then tracing them into these forms. Because if you look at the artwork, um, and you can probably, well, we can maybe put a link somewhere for people to, to look yeah. at some stuff. Um, there's just, it's full of characters. Like I, Is I'm, it linked on your page? Uh, I don't think I have a lot of these new pieces up there, but if you go to my Instagram, for instance, which is at void underscore denizen, V-O-I-D underscore D-E-N-I-Z-E-N, -E -E nice. or dot com is where you can find all the links and everything. Um, a lot of these pieces are... Um, I don't know what I was going to say. But it's, yeah, it's like the, the estranged parts of the self like come to the forefront. So it's peopled with all these different characters and personalities where we think of ourselves as this seemingly singular self, as a lot of the stories we've been sharing here reveal is that we're made up of entire ecologies, biological ecologies of organisms, microorganisms, but also like psychological ecologies, like the voice in our head that is supposedly us is also a conglomeration of, you know, influences, parents, education, all this stuff, and it kind of like gets clumped together under this singular source. So, in a way, this artwork just shows the the, the multitudes I contain slash we contain because it becomes this mirror for all these weird and sometimes funny and sometimes perverted assemblies of of personalities. So I got to share that, and I got to share the stories behind it, and uh, I'm spending the rest of the month in New York and looking for more opportunities to, to like, share adventures and stories and art. Yeah. And you're talking New York City. New York City, yeah, New York City. <laughs> and right now I had to, like, had the opportunity to come visit you and, and step outside for a second and, and hear the cricket choirs again, which is... 
I think I think it's important because as much as I love the human pulse of the city, and the city is a ceremony, you know, like you're in it, and it's just like the the self-intersecting ego geometries of humanity folded in on itself is very inspiring and good for writing. But it's so important to come back to the shh, cricket silence yeah, of yeah. nature. I, I can't stand the city, honestly. No, I don't. I don't blame you. Like I find it very exciting to visit, but I know that if I would live there. I would need a lot, like it's like my phone that needs to be charged more, I'd need a lot more recharging yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right now I can I can ride high on it, but... Uh, well, you've been in the jungle for a few years. Yeah, that's so. it. I've, I haven't had that much social interaction. It was my uh, uh, my girlfriend and I were there for a year and a half where it was mostly the two of us and then some people would come through. But So right now I'm getting really high on just like meeting new people, social interaction. and. Uh, Is yeah. your girlfriend still there? No, she she's not my ex-girlfriend. I'll oh, still okay. speak of it in the present tense. She moved back to Argentina, where she was from. And mm -hmm. she also met me through kind of like a dream portal. Like, she had heard me on a podcast and then reached out to me. And we corresponded for a moment. It was just like, she was like, hey, I really I feel like you're a friend I haven't met yet. And so I wrote back. And then she had a dream. And she wrote me about this dream where we were sailing the ship through a storm and navigating it towards safety. And this was right at a time that this kind of energetic tempest had moved through the snail house where the, the water didn't work the next day, the toilet wouldn't flush, the car oh. wouldn't start, this kind of thing. So I was like, when was this dream? This was last night? And she was like, yeah. So I was like, that's interesting. Oh. And, uh, and then I invited her to meet for this gathering we were having elsewhere in another jungle in Mexico in a rainforest. And she came over and we were together from that moment until she moved back to Argentina. Hmm. So, but we're still we're still on close terms, and it was an amicable parting. Good. But yes, another another dream. Somebody that orients themselves through their dreams, which it's like it's um, I think it's a courageous thing to do, you know, in life to really like follow those intuitions. But one of the things that motivated her to do it was that she knew she would regret it if she didn't follow this. Yeah. This th this glimmer. I know that feeling. Yeah. And so, like, I, I very much live my life that way, where I'm going to follow these intuitions and these little... Oh, absolutely. These little... Even when they're small things. Yeah. Especially if they're small things, because yeah. that's like what they call a glimmer, right? Like, yeah. it increases the more you, you focus on it. You just gotta, you gotta wonder sometimes if you're just creating that glimmer because you're following it. Or if you're actually following something. Well, that's the time loop logic, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's like the glimmer, it's almost like... It's you from the future sending yourself a message back in time saying, I'm safe here, follow this. And then when you make it to the point of safety, which the glimmer led you to, it's like the time loop is closed and then right, you right. follow the next one. So it's like our, our way of orienting through time. Hmm. And I, I resonate with it because it's got gotten me this far and I'm still alive. I may be, you know, <laughs> I may be being eaten alive <laughs> by parasites at some point in there, but I mean... It makes for a rich life, I think. There's I, worse things that could have. Yeah, I would agree with that. Could one. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, because that's, I mean, dreams are some one of the things that have navigated me through life. Yeah. Usually, toward people. Yeah. So I'll dream about someone. It's not even that I dream about someone. I get literal information about someone. Interesting. In a dream state. So it's not I'm dreaming about something that's going to happen. This is where Wargo and I kind of were, were differing a bit because, I mean, as far as six years ahead, I was told specific information about someone. 
But then the question that probably Wargo asked you too is that that information get confirmed by them later on? Because if, oh, that's, yeah. if that's yeah. the case, then that's where in the his time mind... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it, but he was, he was focused very much on things being like, you know, two or three days ahead. Uh, I have, I've heard him say too that sometimes it's like to the day, like 10 years in the future, things like that. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think you're that at odds with him. Well, he's, sense, he's shifted, I think, a little bit then. That's also possible, yeah. Because he was very, in, in uh, time loops, he's very set on the idea that most of these things happen two or three days precognitive. I see. I see. You know, and I'm going, I got some that are s at least six years out, possibly more. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, it's not, I'm not dreaming about something that happens. I'm being given very specific information. Yeah, yeah. yeah. More yeah. than half of mine are driving me away from things that are dangerous mm, okay. and only a few of those ever get fully you know uh confirmed so a lot of them i just go i believe because those other ones were were confirmed so it doesn't necessarily have a, a loop back yeah it just yeah. is something i went with because i knew different different part of the multiverse it's yeah like based based on those other ones i know that that feeling is almost certainly correct and that i need right. to avoid the thing that so instead of showing you where to go, it's showing you where not to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's showing me the danger, and yeah, then I can yeah. evade that danger. Uh, and whether it's confirmed or not is kind of moot to me because the other ones were confirmed, and it's the same feeling. So yeah, it, yeah. it's safer to just you know err on the side of caution. Well, I, I really like the the element of because we think of dreams as almost like a non-biological element, right? It's like a psychological or a, a spiritual dimension. But by thinking of these things as orienting us through time towards safety and survival, it brings it back to the animal element, the animal body and the, the survivalist earthbound terrain, which I find very satisfying in a way. Trying to maintain this form. <laughs> Yeah. It's for as long as Yeah, possible. so that we can continue dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> it's very self it's yeah. very self interested too, the dream realm. It's like if you don't have the body intact <laughs> we can't dream. When you were talking to, to Nathan and your and your but you, you you he was talking about how God is just uh basically wants those moments of wow how did well, he put it how did he put it he put it it's so perfectly Alfred North Whitehead thing that he was touching onto. This is uh, Nathan Dufour, aka Nathanology. He said God, and God in the like Whiteheadian sense, I don't know how to conceptualize that entirely, but think of that however you want, life, <laughs> the universe, whatever, likes localized intensities yes. of experience. That really, mm. really resonated with and me. And so he was, like he was relating that to my like yeah. parasitic thing. He's like, here's this single cellular thing thriving or like vying for survival against you multicellular being who doesn't really want that, but it's making for an interesting and intensity of experience. Drama. That, <laughs> that the gods just kind of go like, oh, it's a good show. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it feels like. That, that immediately just struck me. Yeah. That was so... And that's like, that's weird. the idea. I mean, I, I mentioned like the idea of the folklorax. I have this thing, like one of my, if I could find a purpose of why we're here, I think it's to serve the lore, praise the lore, because we're all made of this, or embedded in this fabric of story, right? This like storied fabric of humanity, stories we share, and um, that's that's where that resonates for me, is like that God, or the the observer, or whatever that part is that, in, that gets to enjoy this experience beyond the duality of the 
the the attraction and aversion and the good and the bad and the suffering and right. the pleasures that that part just likes a good story <laughs> yep praise the lord <laughs> nice all right well we are almost out of time um tell people where they can find you again in the name of your podcast yes please visit www.fullstoptheungoogleable.com and that's where you can also find my Instagram, my Twitter. Do we call it X? No. I don't, no, no. <laughs> we call it Twitter. I mean, why why would you X. take a brand that is literally part of the language and change its name? I think he should change his name to Elon Musk. That's, <laughs> that's the safest bet. Yes. But anyway, yeah, theungoogleable.com. That's where you find all the links. And then my podcast is called Self-Portraits as Other People, which you can find wherever pods are cast, at your local podcastle, wherever that may be. And anything else that, that, oh, there yeah. that people should know about? So I have a book. Actually, I actually have two books, but... One of them is the most recent one that I briefly mentioned, Impatient Transformations. And there's only 300 copies in existence, and you can get that on my site as well, which is okay. like um, wordplay and artwork and a trippy little tome. Um, so check that out. And um, if you're in New York City for this month which only... Is August, September? Yep, August into, I think, September 3rd is when we're going to take it down. You can okay. come to the Athenaeum in Midtown Manhattan on uh, 222 46th Avenue and come check out a really cool space that's kind of like through the looking glass out of the city in the Psychedelic Library, and you can check out some of my artwork there. And if you're not in New York City, check out my artwork online. Feast your eyes and ears and other senses. And Natalie, where can people find you? Well, did you still have the he and she of it available? That one is still, there's still some okay. copies well, of it. I have an too. illustration in that, if anybody's interested in that. A dope I uh, really don't have much presence online currently, but at your rhythm is what, where you'll find me, or Molly Grew. And what's what's the thing you just said you're in? He and She of It is a book, his other book. It's a, yeah, it's okay. a poetry the book the that's she illustrated it. by It's not people. about gender theory, as some people might think. <laughs> the He and the She of It was a... Uh, a book of little poetic verses and I got during the pandemic 35 artists to collaborate on illustrations so they oh. each take a verse and illustrate it and Natalie's illustration is super dope and super on brand for your oneric I'm glad it fits so well <laughs> style. yeah no it's a, it's a super sick piece all right well thank you both thank you yeah. thank you I want to take a moment here to thank all of my patreons Without you, this show would not be possible. And I want to give a special shout-out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Greg Ross, Billuminati, Leanne Cherry, Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Tim, Matthew Sproul, Andrew Nichols, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Lemina, Bright Rectangle, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Diane B, MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, History and Coffee, Jay, Jay Otto Bullet, Jack Huntington, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Mattingly, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, CJ, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L, Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linda, 
Lynn's Jackson K, MJ Armstrong, Mark Bowley, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Ole Andre Olar, Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Wesley, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Schmooples, Devourer of Mortal Souls, Seed Person 1, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Deller Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Varosh K, Vincent Trewell, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Annabelle Smith, Caroline Walker, TDT Skunkworks, A Crocodile, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very, very much. So since the ungoogleable one was here, uh, he'll be joining us on next week's show as well. And uh, we did uh, some Patreon stuff, walking around some cemeteries in Ithaca. So that'll be up for patrons. And uh, like I said, he'll also be on next week's show. Definitely check out his stuff. He's an interesting guy, and uh, I will most likely have him back. All right. Uh, I wanted to uh, give a shout-out to a few new patrons. Jacob Kassler, Purito Kitten, Chris Reese, and CJ. Thank you all for joining up. I hope you enjoyed the extra content. And uh, to take you out, we are going to hear a song from the ungoogleable Michelangelo. Under the name Void Denison, off his album Seance Fiction, This is a song called Tragic Magic. I'll see you next time.
been listening to where did the road go this show is made possible in part from our patreons and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange you can always find everything where did the road go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com and thank you so much for your support